Good morning from the newsroom of the Financial Times. Today is Friday, October 11th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Sterling had an impressive jump on Thursday after a Brexit meeting between the UK and Ireland. The FT reports that James Murdoch's new holding company is building on his media portfolio, and the US and China are hoping to reach a trade deal as soon as this week. Plus, the FT's Martin Arnold unpacks the deep divide at the European Central Bank and the ripple effect it's having. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. Sterling had a big day on Thursday thanks to what appeared to be some positive Brexit talks. The pound had its largest one-day rise in seven months, climbing to $1.24. The boost came after UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson met with his Irish counterpart, Leo Varadkar, the two leaders saying they can see a pathway to a Brexit deal. It was a surprise, considering the low expectations going into the meeting. Today, the EU's chief Brexit negotiator, Michel Barnier, will determine whether the progress the UK and Ireland made will be enough for a breakthrough in negotiations. A Murdoch becomes involved in another media company. This time, it comes from Rupert Murdoch's younger son, James. Sources tell the FT that his new holding company, Lupa Systems, has agreed to buy a minority stake in Vice Media. James is investing the money from his share of most of the Murdoch family's sale of the 21st century Fox empire to Disney. James and his siblings are estimated to have received about $2 billion each from the Disney deal, but it's unknown how much Lupa's stake in Vice is. James has been on the board of Vice for several years as a result of the Fox investment in the company. His minority stake comes right after Vice made a mostly stock acquisition of lifestyle website Refinery29. And the White House is feeling pretty confident about trade talks with China. The FT's James Politi explains where all this optimism is coming from. So high-level U.S. and Chinese uh, officials met yesterday to begin talks for a possible truce in the trade war that has been really afflicting the two countries and their economies for the last 18 months. Essentially, they're trying to stave off an increase in tariffs on about $250 billion of Chinese imports into the United States, which are due to take effect on October 15th. And they've been discussing the terms of a possible, basically, stay in the, in the trade war. It wouldn't be a full-blown deal between the two sides, but it would be a sort of limited ceasefire. And the Chinese have offered to buy some additional agricultural products, There may be some limited currency, intellectual property provisions in there, but it would be far from the sort of sweeping agreement that they had tried to reach and failed to reach um, back in April and May of this year. It would give some relief to the world economy if such a deal were to be reached, but it wouldn't eliminate uh, sort of all the uncertainty surrounding the U.S.-China economic relationship. The deal is, of course, not, not guaranteed by any stretch. Mr. Trump uh, is expected to meet with uh, Liu He, the China's vice premier, at the White House today. That's when a deal could be announced or, you know, things could uh, completely fall apart. Uh, So we still don't know exactly the direction this is going to take, but there's certainly more optimism now about this potential truce than there had been. And here's a story you should know more about. There has been a lot of tension at the European Central Bank lately. Last month, the German representative on the bank's executive board resigned. 
And yesterday, the FT reported that the bank's Monetary Policy Committee was ignored when it gave key advice leading up to the ECB September meeting. The divide all comes down to the bank's push for quantitative easing. Some members of the ECB are for it, some aren't. And as the FT's Frankfurt editor Martin Arnold explains, the ECB's moves point to a larger trend in the global economy. There's so much uncertainty surrounding central bank monetary policy at the moment that there is a huge debate going on within the ECB and around the ECB, but also around other central banks, about what the right steps are for them to take in this very uncertain world where we have trade tensions. We don't know how that's going to come come out. We, we have Brexit uncertainty. We have uncertainty around the German economy and the car industry. So much un- uncertainty, and, and it's very difficult to predict what's, what's coming down the tracks. So it's very difficult for central banks to act in this environment when they really don't know what the economy is likely to be doing in the future. And so the ECB has taken pretty decisive action, and some people think that it's overreached, and particularly controversial is the restarting of QE. And that just shows that those divisions really are, and this argument and debate is running through the whole institution as well as externally. Martin, I want to go back to something you said a little earlier. You said there's a lot of uncertainty out there, not just at the ECB. How is the ECB's monetary policy affecting other central banks? Yeah, well, it's it's interesting. Central banks all watch each other very closely. All central banks watch the Fed particularly closely. And I think that, if anything, the ECB has been put in a bit of a corner by the Fed, which has already been started earlier this year, cutting interest rates. And that increased the pressure on the ECB to, to take action, certainly from the point of view of where I'm sitting here in Frankfurt. And that's part of the reason why the ECB felt it was required to come up with a strong package of easing measures in order to respond to the downturn in the same way that the Fed had already started to do so. And what they didn't want to see happen at the ECB would would be for the euro to start appreciating or for interest rates in the eurozone to start rising compared to those in the US. And so there is a little bit of that. I mean, the central bankers will never admit that they're responding to other central banks, but there's certainly an element of that going on. And I'm not sure it's quite as overt or as explicit as President Donald Trump would have you believe when he tweets about the ECB. He often accuses the ECB of of trying to manipulate the euro and weaken it against the dollar to give Europe an advantage. I'm not sure it's quite that straightforward, but there's certainly an element of them watching each other and responding. So the upcoming meeting is Mr. Draghi's last with the ECB. And I got to say, it feels like Mr. Draghi's leaving quite a bit of work for Ms. Lagarde in terms of patching up relationships. What is her first priority when she takes over in November? Well, that's a, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think you can look at it in two ways. You can look at it as the way that you described, which is as a bit of a poison chalice from Mario Draghi to, to Christine Lagarde. And as a divided governing council, as deeply controversial move to launch such a monetary stimulus just before departing. And in a way, has he tied her hands by doing all of this that she almost will feel obliged to kind of follow on and support? That's one way of looking at it. The other way to look at it is that most people think that Christine Lagarde shares Mario Draghi's view on the need to take action and supports his relatively dovish stance on monetary policy. 
and that actually he's done her a favor by using up the last few months of his time as president of the ECB to tackle the opponents and drive this through so that Christine Lagarde has got a bit of breathing room when she takes over. Because I don't know if you remember, but when Mario Draghi took over from Trichet eight years ago, he, in his very first meeting, he reversed interest rate increase that Jean-Claude Trichet had done very recently, and he cut rates. So he was forced into an almost immediate reversal of his predecessor's policies. I don't think that Christine Lagarde would like to have to come in and take drastic action straight away. So he's given her a bit of breathing room. I think that's actually done her a bit of a favor. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back next week for the latest business news. The FT News Briefing is produced by Amy Keene and me, Mark Filipino. Our editor is Amelia Mahasik. We also had help this week from Gavin Kalman and Michael Bruning. The FT has launched a new podcast called The Rockman Review, a weekly look at global affairs by the FT's chief foreign affairs commentator, Gideon Rockman. The show will take in some of the interviews with decision-makers and analysts Gideon meets in his travels around the world. And the show will draw on the FT's great network of foreign correspondents. This podcast is exclusively for FT subscribers, so if that's you, please go to ft.com forward slash Rockman Review. Sign up for a taste of the global political debates that Gideon writes about in his columns. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.